0: All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff, one of the pastors here at HMCC of Jakarta. And it's always my privilege to be preaching the Word of God for us today. So we're currently in part 62 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the Gospel of Luke together. So let's get right into today's sermon. It'll be about Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, quick question. Have you guys heard about this test called the marshmallow test? Okay, it's okay if you haven't. It's a study that was actually done by Stanford University, and it's to test for a child's ability to delay gratification. So this is what they did. The researcher would place a child in a room and then place one marshmallow in front of the kid, and then they'd leave the room. So then the child is given two options. Either they can eat the marshmallow right away or within 15 minutes, or wait for 15 minutes And then when the researcher comes back, they'll get two marshmallows. Now, I think you can guess what's going to happen here. Now, a good number of times when the researcher came back into the room, they'll find the kid still there, but then no marshmallow. The marshmallow's already gone. Now, when the kids see the researcher, you know, coming back, oh, man, they probably regret their decision. Man, I should have waited 15 minutes so I can get two marshmallows. But that's it, no redo, they only get one chance. And you know what, it's actually the same with us. Here on earth, we only get one chance. And the test that we face here is even bigger than the marshmallow test. Because our Lord Jesus Christ will return once again. And when Jesus returns for the second time, he will judge us according to how we've lived our lives. So today, we'll be taking a look at one of Jesus' parables, that, and he'll address important matters about life and the afterlife. So the one thing for us today is this. How we respond to God's word in this temporary life will decide where we spend our eternal afterlife. How we respond to God's word in this temporary life will decide where we spend our eternal afterlife. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Luke 16, 19 to 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. So for context, at the beginning of the previous chapter, if you guys remember, there were two groups of people that's gathering around Jesus, right? You have the tax collectors and sinners, that's one group, and the other group, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. And then the religious leaders, they were grumbling amongst themselves because they couldn't believe that Jesus was associating himself with these tax collectors and sinners. And then on top of that, last week, we saw that they started ridiculing Jesus because of what Jesus was teaching his disciples, that you cannot serve God and money. You know, this was ridiculous to them because they themselves were lovers of money. So then Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He exposed the Pharisees as those who only justified themselves before men. They had twisted God's law only to benefit themselves. But then in so doing, they totally missed the heart behind God's law. So that's what we took a look at last week. And then now in today's passage, Jesus continues to respond to the Pharisees' grumbling and ridicule with another parable. So please take a look at Luke 16, verses 19 to 31 with me. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. So we'll take a look at this passage in three parts. First, in verses 19 to 22, we'll see the temporary nature of this life. And then second, in verses 23 to 26, we'll see the eternal nature of the afterlife. And then finally, verses 27 to 31, we'll see the sufficient nature of God's word. Now, just to give you guys a heads up, I'll briskly go through the first point, and then we'll spend uh, most of our time today in the second point. So let's take a look at the first point, verses 19 to 22, the temporary nature of this life. So here we see that Jesus begins his parable by introducing us to two characters. There was a rich man, there was a poor man. So two very different characters here. But notice how the rich man, he wasn't just rich. You know, we consider this to be crazy rich. He owned a gated house and he had the most extravagant of clothes made of fine linen, colored in purple. Now, back in those days, the color purple is the most expensive color because the dye was so labor-intensive to make. The source of the dye is this mucus that comes from specific snails from the Mediterranean Sea. And then it took thousands of these snails just to make one ounce of this purple dye. So then that's why during those times, the color purple, it was associated with royalty and wealth. So it's very expensive to make. Now this guy... The rich man, he made it a habit to wear these kinds of extravagant clothes, not occasionally, but every day. And he feasted luxuriously every day. So that's the kind of person he is. So what did he do with all of his worldly riches? He enjoyed it all for himself, spending his money for his own enjoyment, comfort, pleasures, every day, all the time. And then on the other side of this house, we see that outside the gate, there was a poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus wasn't just poor, he was deep in poverty, hunger, and sickness. So totally the opposite of this rich man. You know, he was homeless, probably wearing the same dirty clothes every day, and his body wasn't covered in purple, it was covered in sores. So imagine raw, open wounds, and he's starving, but he can't afford any food. So he he desires to be fed from the rich man's table scraps. And then to make matters worse, wild street dogs came and licked his source, tormenting him. And I imagine as he lay there, he wouldn't even have enough energy to try and shoo the dogs away. So imagine this is his life. Hunger, discomfort, pain, every day, all the time. So Jesus is highlighting here two people living lives that cannot be more different than one another. One received all these good things, and then the other received all these bad things. And then what happens next? Let's look at verse 22. The poor man died, which we kind of expected, but then the rich man also died. That's a little unexpected. But then what Jesus is highlighting here is that they both died. You know, there's this famous quote, death is the great equalizer. So it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you own a home or homeless, dress extravagantly or simply, eating luxuriously or barely eating. At the end of the day, everyone will eventually die. And that's because our lives here on earth are temporary. We're only here for a limited amount of time. And that end will come relatively quickly because our lives here on earth are very brief. We're here today, gone tomorrow. And I I think we've all felt just how quickly time can pass us by, right? Just think of this past year. Can't believe it's almost Q4 already. Felt like it was just the beginning of the year. And if you look around the church, the kids, they've grown up so fast. And then for those of us who are almost 30 or over the age of 30, you know that our bodies are starting to break down already. It felt like yesterday we were much younger. Now we're taking more vitamins and our body is not functioning properly, not optimally. You know, Time is passing by so quickly, isn't it? And one day, our bodies will completely stop functioning. We'll all die. Our lives on earth, Are temporary. And Jesus is describing two extreme examples of temporary lives on earth, extreme comfort and extreme suffering. But in reality, we may be somewhere in the middle. We experience some sort of comfort, but then we also experience some sort of suffering or struggle. So then what does this mean for us that our lives on earth are temporary? Well, for those of us us who experience both comfort and suffering, this should be both sobering and comforting. It's sobering because this reminds us that whatever we possess here on earth, whatever whatever we experience, it will not last forever. So our worldly riches, wealth, health, that will one day end. But then it's also comforting because this reminds us that whatever we're suffering through, whatever our struggles are, it's also one day will end. So in that sense, it's both sobering and comforting. Death is a great equalizer. You know, there's actually something inaccurate about that famous quote. Because yes, you know, everyone will one day die. But what happens after death is very much not equal for everyone. And we'll see later on that for some people, their suffering will not end. So that's what we'll take a look at next, the eternal nature of the afterlife. So when the poor man died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So that's to say, he went to heaven. But then when the rich man died, he didn't go to heaven. He went to Hades, or hell, where he was in torment, suffering. So these two characters they went to two completely different places after they died. And this gives us a glimpse of the afterlife. Because after you die, according to Scripture, you'll go to one of two places. Either you go to heaven or you'll go to hell. And these two places are very much not equal. In fact, they can not be more opposite than one another. They're completely on two different ends of the spectrum. Now, when we look at Scripture... This is how the Bible describes heaven. Heaven is a place of eternal joy. We'll be fully conscious, fully aware of what's happening in heaven, and we'll experience heavenly comfort. No more pain, no sorrow, no suffering. So whatever our burdens were on earth, there'll be no more. And imagine all of God's people worshiping God together as one spiritual family. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, living in perfect harmony and peace. Just imagine that, you know, all of us living in heaven together, living life on life together, worshiping God together, kind of like what we're doing today, except it'll be far more glorious than what we can imagine. I know, you know, as we try to think about that, it's overwhelming. It's difficult for us to imagine that. But I think that's the point. You know, heaven is going to be far better than anything that we can currently imagine. No, that's the amazing thing about it. And then not only that, but it'll last forever. And that concept of forever, of eternity, that's also something our minds actually can't wrap around. It's difficult for us to imagine endless time. But that's what heaven is. It's goodness beyond anything that we can imagine for as long as more than we can imagine. So that's heaven. So after Lazarus died... This is where he's now at. He's at a place of eternal joy that's never-ending. Now, on the other hand, the rich man, after he died, he's being tormented in hell. Now, I said the word hell, so before I continue, let me just address the alpha in the room. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't like reading or learning about hell. It's not very fun for me to talk about hell. I don't think you guys are expecting to listen to a sermon about hell, and it's not going to be too much fun. But here we see that Jesus is talking about hell. And actually, if you look at the New Testament, Jesus spends a lot of his ministry talking about hell. So, with that in mind, let's dive in, knowing that Jesus believes that's actually very important for us to actually think, talk, and listen about hell. Now, the Bible describes hell as the complete opposite of heaven. Hell is a place of darkness, a place of God's divine wrath and judgment. Because in hell, there will be endless suffering. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of unquenchable fire where there will be no peace, no rest, and where the smoke of torment goes up forever and ever. So just like how it's difficult for us to imagine heaven, it's difficult for us to imagine the horrors of hell. Because even for me, you know, I can imagine extreme pain. I mean, imagine like something that, the worst pain that you guys have gone through. I mean, we can imagine that for, let's say, like five minutes, ten minutes. But then to imagine that's going to last for an endless amount of time, that's, you know, that's not something that I want to talk, uh, to think about. It's not something that you guys want to think about. But that's the reality as revealed in Scripture. Endless torment in hell. And that's what this rich man is suffering through. He's in extreme agony and unquenchable fire in hell. Hell is painful. Verses 23 to 25 then say this. And in Hades, being in torment, he, that's a rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. So what that means is that this is a fictional story for the purpose of teaching. So this doesn't mean that those in heaven and hell will be able to communicate with one another. But rather, the fictional conversation between the rich man and Abraham is supposed to teach us something. So that's the purpose of this parable. So in this fictional event that Jesus is describing, we see that, you know as the rich man is being tormented in the fire of hell, he sees Abraham and Lazarus far off. And he basically asked Abraham to send Lazarus so that just for a brief, short moment of time, his unending pain and agony can stop, even just for a, l- a little bit. But then that's not possible. Abraham explains why it's not possible. It's because in his lifetime, he's already received his good things, while Lazarus received bad things. So then now, Lazarus is comforted in heaven while he is in English, in hell. So what what is Jesus highlighting here? He's highlighting justice. What he's not saying is that the poor will go to heaven and the rich will go to hell. That's not what he's saying. Because here we see that Abraham is also in heaven. And if you guys go to the book of Genesis, Abraham was described as being a very, very wealthy man. He was rich in livestock, silver and gold, so it's not a matter of the poor going to heaven or the rich going to hell. But again, what Jesus is highlighting here is justice because if you take a look at the rich man and how he lived his life on earth, even though he clearly loved and served money and not God, he was able to enjoy a life of comfort and extravagance when really he should have been punished for his sins against God. And then on the other hand, Lazarus, who from, the, from this text, you know, we can safely assume that he's a chosen child of God. He's the one on earth suffering in poverty and hunger when he really should be experiencing comfort and peace as one of, the, as one of God's chosen people. So Jesus is highlighting that there will be justice in the afterlife. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves before God will be lifted up. And this would have been so shocking to the Pharisees who are listening to this parable. Because during those times, you no know, people thought that if you're rich, if you're wealthy, then that means that you're blessed by God. And then if you're poor, you're sick, then that means you're cursed. That either you or your parents have sinned against God. But then there's an interesting uh, thing here in this parable. Jesus intentionally named this poor man Lazarus. And this is unique to his parables because he usually doesn't name the characters in his parables. But then he's doing so intentionally because the name Lazarus, it means helped by God. So the people during those times listening to this, they'd be confused. Nope, doesn't sound like he's helped by God. He's poor, he's sick. But then Jesus is flipping that understanding completely upside down. So this surprising twist, it would have caused the Pharisees to grumble and ridicule him all the more. Because then they'd be thinking like, okay, hold on, Jesus. Is this Jesus saying that we, the religious leaders, who've memorized God's laws, who are blessed by God with all this wealth, is Jesus implying that we're the ones headed to hell? Well, yes, but not merely because they're rich. Why? Well, remember the context from the previous passage. The Pharisees have twisted God's law. They've completely missed the heart of God's law. They use it to justify themselves before men, making it seem as if they're holy, based on their ability to follow the law properly. Where in reality, on the inside, Inside their hearts, they didn't love God, they didn't love others, they just loved themselves. They just wanted to appear like they're good people. But what they loved was their status and money. But God's law was not meant to be used to make us feel more superior to other people. But it was meant to show us how far away we actually are from God's perfect standard. It's supposed to show us how inferior we are compared to God because God's standard is not merely just obedience, but it's perfect obedience. To perfectly love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. And to perfectly love our neighbors as ourselves. Now can we say that any of us here have perfectly done those things? If we're honest with ourselves, we've all fallen short of God's perfectly righteous standard because sinfully deep inside our hearts our tendency is not to love God and others it's to love ourselves to love this temporary life that we have on earth as if it's all there is and we love enjoying all the pleasures that the world has to offer so naturally you know we don't we don't want to think about death or hell and we don't want to be we want to be seen as good people we don't want to be seen as though, as, as though we're bad, as though we're sinners. So then what we do when we sin, we tend to justify ourselves. And we're tempted to say, you know, my sin's not too bad. You know, actually, if I compare myself to this person, I think his sins are bigger. And he's struggling with his sin more than me. So actually, I'm not that bad. I don't deserve to go to hell. You know, that's the kind of thinking that would make the Pharisees upset and offended by Jesus' teaching about hell, because hell is offensive to us if we don't believe that we deserve hell. It's only offensive if you don't believe that you deserve it. Now, I know of someone, and and this person, he he wasn't a Christian at the time, but this person tried to not sin for one day, but then guess what he found out? As hard as he tried, he realized that it was so easy for him to think about sinful thoughts, for him to act and behave in sinful ways. You know, at the time, he wasn't even a Christian. He's a Christian now. But even, at, even then, it made him realize that he's indeed a sinner. Then so, I have a question for us. Why do people continue to sin? If it's so bad to sin, why do we keep sinning? You know, I thought about this, and I think it's because most of the time it feels good to sin, right? It feels kind of good not to have to think about others, to just enjoy our own pleasures. You know, Think about it, like whatever your personal sins are, it may make you feel good, even if it's just temporary. So then you keep doing it. Now, my next question is this. If we actually enjoy sinning, if it feels good, then what's the issue with sin? Because it makes us feel good. Well, let's look at the text. Our main issue with sin is that there's a consequence for our sins, an eternal consequence. That's our issue with sin. Now, we understand that if we break the laws that are set by the country, we'd face punishment, right? We can agree on that. So it's the same train of thought here. Those who break God's law deserve punishment, which means that those who go to hell deserve to be there. And since we've all broken God's law, this means that we all deserve to be there, punished in hell. It would be completely just, completely fair for God to do that. That's what we deserve. Now, I just want to address a misconception that some people may think that people go to hell because they don't know Jesus. That's not actually accurate. Because people go to hell not because they don't know Jesus, but because of their sins. No, that's the bad news. That the consequence of our sins is eternal punishment in hell. That's the bad news. Now, going back to the parable we we may now be thinking okay then if everyone deserves to be in in hell then how does anyone go to heaven how is this lazarus in heaven well again remember the context of what happened just before this and jesus just shared parables about the lost sheep the lost coin the lost sons and then from those parables we learn that god is actually gracious and merciful he's actively looking for his lost people He's waiting with open arms for his children to repent and to turn back to him. And then we learn from those parables that all of heaven is ready to celebrate when even one sinner repents. So that's the good news, that God has has not abandoned us even though we've abandoned him. Because the heart of God's law is his love. And God loves us so much that he came from heaven to earth to save us. Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh. He's fully man, fully God. And this is how Jesus saved us. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not. He fulfilled the laws perfectly that we couldn't. He perfectly loved God and loved others during his time on earth. So then when Jesus died on our behalf, as our substitute, since he was without sin, he didn't die for his own sins, but then he died for our sins so that we may be forgiven and we may be be made right in the sight of God. And then for those of us who repent of our sins, who turn away from our sins and turn to God, those who put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Will not be punished in hell, but will have eternal life in heaven. That's the good news. The good news is that hell is avoidable. But here's the thing there's a limited amount of time for repentance. God has graciously given us time to repent during our lifetime here on earth. This is like our 15 minutes. But then after we die, there's no redo. Just like the marshmallow test, we only get one chance. When we die, it will be the time for our lives to be judged. And how we respond to God's word in this temporary life will decide where we spend our eternal afterlife. Will it be heaven or hell? Will God's word lead us to respond in repentance or will we respond by justifying ourselves before others? Or perhaps some of us choose to respond by not wanting to think about God's word. We don't want to think about the afterlife. It's hard to think about death or hell. But here, Jesus clearly, he wants us to think about these things because the eternal consequence of our sins is going to be eternal. We're here on earth only temporarily, but then we'll either be in heaven or hell for eternity, an endless amount of time. And that eternal nature is highlighted next in verse, 20, in verse 26. Uh, please take a look at verse 26. Abraham gives the second reason to this rich man on why it would be impossible for him to send Lazarus to him. And that's because there's a great chasm that's been fixed by God between heaven and hell so that no one can pass from heaven to hell and from hell to heaven. So this highlights that heaven and hell will be eternally separated. So those that will be in heaven will remain there forever. And those who will be in hell will remain there forever. So there's no in-between. There's no purgatory where one, can car- where one can cross over to heaven. There's no crossing over. So in the afterlife, you'll be in either one of two places, heaven or hell. And hell is painful. But it's deserved and it's eternal. But through our repentance, it's also avoidable. And we'll see that further as we dive into the sufficient nature of God's word. That's next. Verses 27 to 28 say this. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So as this rich man understands his reality that he'll be an eternal torment in hell, he remembers his family. And he's thinking, you know, I don't want my family to suffer the same fate as me. Please send Lazarus to warn my family so that they don't suffer in hell. Yeah, you know, I can understand where this rich man's coming from and I think we can kind of share that sentiment. You know, there's this song, written by Shai Lin. It's called Letter from the Grave. And I think this can help us better understand the sentiment of this rich man or someone in hell, what they may be feeling or thinking. So I'll read some of the lyrics here for us. Quote, I'm in agony in this fire. Please, can I I just warn my family, please? Can I just warn my family? Just let me go back. If I can't go back, let me write them a letter or let me dictate it. I'll dictate it, please. Just write this down for me, please. To my parent, my sisters, my cousins, my nieces, friends, co-workers, everybody needs to read this. You're probably thinking I'm in heaven, smiling down upon you. But that's not true. I'm writing this now to warn you. Your pride will be killed. The God of the Bible is real. Y'all know I ain't read the Bible a day in my life. But he's the one who's inflicting all my pain and my strife. So get a Bible and read it. Whatever you read, believe it. After believing, eat it, sleep it, and breathe it. There's much more to this man Jesus. Observe the story. And I can tell you that there's no such thing as purgatory. What I wouldn't give to have your opportunity. I see my pride has ruined me. Ignoring God is lunacy. End quote. This is what the rich man or someone in hell may be thinking. They may have this great desire to warn their family members, their friends about hell and for them to repent while they still can. Verses 29 to 31 then say this, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, Moses and the prophets here, it refers to what we now know as the Old Testament. So, Abraham explains that the rich man's brothers, they already have God's word to teach them all that they need about torment in hell and about repentance. But then this rich man, he disagrees. He, he refutes Abraham. He doesn't believe that scripture would be enough. He says, no, send Lazarus. Send someone from the dead. Then my brothers would definitely believe that there is this eternal torment in hell. But then what Abraham's basically saying is this. God's word is enough. It's sufficient to convince us of our sins and to save us from eternal torment in hell. Because if you try to follow the laws perfectly, you'll see the heart behind God's law. You will see how impossible it is to, to obey it perfectly, to love God and others perfectly. So it'll point you to your sins. It'll point to your need of a savior. So Old Testament scripture also points to a coming Messiah, the Savior who we need, the Savior who would save first the Jews and then the Gentiles. That's all already in Scripture. God's Word is sufficient. It's all we need. So what Jesus is basically saying is this. If you don't believe in God's Word, you won't even believe if there's other Signs and miracles, even if someone resurrects from the dead to warn you, you wouldn't even believe it. Now, by God's design, there was actually an actual man, a friend named Jesus, a friend of Jesus, sorry, who was also named Lazarus. So, this is a different Lazarus, the one in the parable, fictional. There's a real man who was named Lazarus, Jesus's friend, and he died. And Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. So what this parable is talking about, like God's design, it actually happened. There was a Lazarus who was resurrected from the dead. But then how did the Pharisees respond? They still didn't believe in what Jesus was saying, in what he was teaching, what he was doing. Actually, this resurrection was not enough for them. And what they ended up doing, actually they, they planned to kill Lazarus because they're thinking, Actually, a lot of people witnessed Jesus resurrect Lazarus, and many people came to believe in Jesus. We don't like that, so we want to get rid of the evidence that are pointing people to Jesus. They plan to kill Lazarus. That's, what, that's, that's how they responded. And not just Lazarus. We know that these religious leaders, they ended up leading the charge to also kill Jesus. And we know that they succeeded Jesus was crucified and he died. But then in three days, Jesus himself resurrected from the dead. And he revealed himself to the apostles and to hundreds of other believers. This is noted down in the New Testament. But still, the religious leaders, they didn't believe that Jesus resurrected. So then what they ended up doing was that they ended up persecuting and and killing Christians who still believe in this Jesus. They arrested the apostles multiple times, telling them to stop spreading the the teachings of Jesus. But then the apostles refused, and hundreds of Christians refused. So then they were tortured, and they died because of their faith. And we can read about this in the book of Acts. The mind-boggling question is this. Why would... Hundreds of people be willing to be tortured for Jesus. Because logically, let's think about this. If someone said that they were God and then they're killed, and then nothing happened, they remain dead, you'd expect the followers to realize that it's all a lie, and for them to just scatter and to just move on with their lives, right? You know, they wouldn't want to be tortured to, to die for a meaningless cause. So then why were hundreds of Christians willing to go through torture and persecution? It's because they were firsthand witnesses to the life of Jesus, to who he is, what he did, and they saw with their very eyes the resurrected Christ in front of them. So then how can they continue living as if Jesus didn't resurrect? Jesus' resurrection Completely changes everything. Because if Jesus truly resurrected, then everything that Jesus says is true. Then all of the Bible is true. You know, Jesus says that he will die and resurrect. That's exactly what happened. And if that's true, then that means that what Jesus is teaching about life, about how it's so temporary, that's not all there is, then that's also true. Then what Jesus is teaching here about the afterlife. Then that must also be true. There's a heaven and there's a hell. Jesus' resurrection completely changes everything. And the first Christians lived their lives holding on to their faith with such steadfastness because they know that their salvation and their eternal life is real, it's truly secured in Christ. And these Christians, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they recorded their first hand encounter with Jesus in what we now know as the New Testament. And why did they do that? It's so that we may believe in Jesus Christ, the one who's fully man and fully God, the one who died for our sins and resurrected, defeating death. Jesus is the only one who lived the perfect life, who crossed the great chasm, who made it possible for us to cross between earth and heaven. Now, the big question is this, have you personally responded to the good news of Jesus Christ? Please don't assume that just because your parents are Christians or just because you grew up going to church, that it means you're guaranteed to go to heaven. That's not true because look at this rich man. He called Abraham Father Abraham, which points to his Jewish ancestry, his family background but that didn't save him. And that's because each of us, we need to respond to God's word personally, on our own. So if you've you've not yet put your faith in Christ, or you're not sure yet about all this, if it's true or not, you know, that's okay. For now, for now, that's okay. But don't stop there. I encourage you to keep going. You know, wrestle through this. Because the Christian faith is not blind faith. It's not blind faith as if we don't know who we're putting our faith in and what's gonna happen next. It's not. We know exactly who we're putting our faith in and exactly what is going to happen next. So if you have questions about the validity or the authenticity of the Bible, if you have questions about Jesus and his teachings, please talk to your Christian friends, to those of us here, talk to the pastors. Please don't just brush this aside as if it doesn't exist. Because the consequence of this is your eternal life. So if there's one thing in the world that you'd want to be sure of, it's this. So if you're still wrestling with this, please do. Now, I hope we'll discover that believing in Christ is actually so much more than just about escaping hell. It's so much more than that. You know, perhaps that's how we were introduced to Christianity, because we thought... I don't want to to go to hell. And then that led us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then I hope that we don't stop there. And I hope we continue to take steps forward and ask, who is this God who rescued me from hell? And I hope that would lead us to greater worship and greater love for this awesome God who saved us from our sins, who rescued us from hell. Because following Jesus is not just merely about escaping hell. It's about a deep and intimate relationship with God and with his people. It's so much more than just escaping hell. And the more that that relationship is built, the more that you get to know God personally, the more your confidence in the gospel will grow. Just like how the first Christians were so confident, were so steadfast in their faith, because of their personal relationship with Christ. So then, again, I encourage you, please wrestle through this. Wrestle through your belief and unbelief. If you're struggling, you can pray this, God, I'm honestly not sure what to believe right now, but please help me with my unbelief. I prayed those exact prayers when I was still trying to figure these things out. And by God's grace, praise God, he answered my prayers. And, I'll, uh, and I also encourage you guys to check out a couple of books that are available in our digital library. Is Hell Real by Dane C. Ortland? and Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. Again, these are available in our church's digital library. So check out those books. They can help answer some of your questions. Now, for those of us here who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. So let's ask ourselves a question that was already asked last week. Then how should our lives be different if we truly believe God's word? Because if we truly believe in God's word, then we'd live as if this world is not all there is because there's an eternal afterlife then we wouldn't hold on to our worldly treasure so tightly. And that should affect how we manage the money and resources that God has entrusted to us. It should affect how we live out the heart of God's law, loving God, loving others. And this should also affect our evangelism efforts. Because if we truly believe what Jesus says about hell, then why are we not telling more people about how to escape hell about how to go to heaven, about how to have a deep and personal relationship with God. You know, why aren't we doing that? So let's respond and help others respond to God's word in this temporary life because it will decide where we spend our eternal afterlife. Now to help us with our next steps, here are three life applications that we can do. Respond to God's Word, live out God's Word, share God's Word. First, respond to God's Word. God's Word is sufficient to convince us of our sins so that we may repent of our sins, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and for the assurance of our salvation. If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do that for the first time in your life. And if you already have, then perhaps we need to keep responding to God's Word on a daily basis. And then second, live out God's word. So the evidence of someone who has true, genuine faith in Christ can be seen through the way that they live their lives. So if someone were to observe, to observe your past week, you know, would they say that you're a God-fearing, God-honoring person? Because the gospel is not only to be believed, but it's to be lived out. Just like how the first Christians continue to live out their faith despite heavy persecution. And then third, share God's word. Share God's word to your family, friends, coworkers, strangers. Point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point them to the only way, to the truth that will set them free, that will save them from hell and lead them to a deep and personal relationship with Christ in heaven. So respond to God's word, live out God's word, share God's word. And again, the one thing for us is this. How we respond to God's word in this temporary life will decide where we spend our eternal afterlife.